0: A lot of, uh, depending on your tradition, lot, uh, tradition. there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Some emphasize prayer, repentance from sins, almsgiving, self-denial, sacrifice for others, and I would encourage you to take advantage of this and do all of it. Um, beginning tomorrow, our elders and staff are going to be sending out daily devotions to our church, and if you would like that, you can uh, certainly call in and give us your email, and you would get them as well just to be an encouragement and to help us as a family to stay connected during this time. What we don't want to do is spend two or three weeks apart and um, miss each other. So if you need pastoral care, for example, call the office, call me um, and somebody. We would love to chat with you, come pray with you, whatever it is we need to do. And uh, this is a a risky time right now. That's why we decided to uh, suspend the church gathering on Sundays for a couple of Sundays anyway, and then we'll reevaluate from there. Okay, during this Lenten season, we are focusing as a church on the prayers of the redeemed, specifically in Revelation. The songs of the redeemed in Revelation are a very unique feature of Revelation, and it's in the songs that we actually find a lot of theology, we find surprises. The first two weeks of Lent, we focus on Revelation four and five. So remember the picture that I presented. John is Revelation four. <clears throat> Revelation two and three, you have the seven churches to uh, the letters to the seven churches. And the Revelation four, he's invited into the throne room of God. And I argued that that we have long taught that earth is here and heaven is somewhere up there. And uh, I think a more accurate way to look at it, they certainly are very distinct realms and spheres. Heaven is where God lives, and that's his domain, and earth is our domain. By the time you get to the end of Revelation, they come together. The line between them is dissolved, and God comes to live with us forever in uh, um, in the person of his son, Jesus. And that's part of his sacrifice, is to become a human and live with us for all of eternity. And so think of heaven and earth as two realms that coexist at the same time. Uh, Paul argues, for instance, in Ephesians 2, that right now we are seated at the right hand of Christ. How is that possible? Since I live in a world with, we can touch everything, we can hear everything. And if we could take these glasses off and put on other lenses, we would see a very different world, I think. So they coexist at the same time. We just can only see one of those. And so John, you might picture it perhaps as a portal. John is standing there and a door opens in his vision so he can see through the door on the other side. And what he sees is the throne room. So he's invited to join God in his own throne room. So I think what's happening in Revelation is that we we are given the chance to see reality, our world, as God sees it not through the lens of evil and tragedy and things like that, but now we get to see it through the lens of power and sovereignty and judgment, what God is going to do and what he is doing. So John is inviting us. uh, The very first thing he sees in Revelation 4 is the throne, um, which would have been very familiar to the people in the first century because they understood thrones with emperors and all of that. And so he's inviting us to see that these worldly powers are simply pretenders, um, but yet they point toward the real throne. They—they're a glimpse. Everything we see on the earth is a, and somehow points us toward reality, and we can see it that way. So today um, we're going to look at something very unique in Revelation, and it reminds us once again of what we've been saying every day—I mean every Sunday—that uh, what Revelation teaches us is that behind everything that's happening in our world stands one who is greater. One who is in control, one who is conscious, who is intentional in reaching into our world. We just can't always see it. And so Revelation gives us a very unique picture. Today we're going to look at a seal, a unique seal. In Revelation 5, the Lord is holding a scroll in his hand. And and the question is asked, who is worthy to unroll the scroll, to open it up? This scroll has seven seals on it. And so John begins to cry. We mentioned last week, he weeps and weeps in uh, Revelation 5, because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. And right off the bat, we have the we have the problem of how God is going to do this, because it's three, he says that a human is going to solve these problems as part of the statement to Eve, your seed, one of your seed, and then will uh, destroy this enemy, and then all the way through that, we know there's a human. By the time we get to Genesis 12, 15, 18, in his conversations with Abraham, it's going to be one of Abraham's descendants, uh, a person from Israel. So we have, it's going to be a human, and it's going to be a Jewish person. The problem is, we all know, humanity has failed, and Israel has failed. That's Paul's argument in Romans. So that presents a real challenge. No wonder John is crying. Who is going to open the scroll? And so what happens is we find out it's the Messiah, Jesus. He is both human, and he is both Jewish, and he is able to fulfill all that God's uh, said would have to happen. So, but what's in this scroll is most likely the plan of God. That's the assumption because. It's uh, He lays out all the problems, and and inside this scroll, think of it as a as an engineer or an architect holding a plan. They have to have a plan in order to do their work. Nancy and I were talking. She's an engineer with Xcel Energy, and she sits down and designs uh, electric construction, electric service to new construction. We've well, got to start with a plan. What is it we're going to be doing? And so we know that inside this scroll is the plan, But it has seven seals on it, and who's going to open the seals? In Revelation chapter 6, which we're not going to go into in detail, but it identifies the first six of those seals. All seven have to be opened before we can take a look at the scroll inside or the plan that God has. And so, Revelation, I mean, Revelation chapter 6 lays out the first of those seals. Um,. So I'm just going to briefly talk about each seal. You can read it if you want. I'm not going to read it here. Keep in mind, this is a very controversial area of study in the book of Revelation. So I'm giving you my thoughts on what these seals are communicating. The first four seals are referenced back to Zechariah chapter 6, I believe. In Zechariah 6, there's this imagery of four horses with different colors. They're commissioned by God to patrol the earth and punish those nations that are oppressing God's people. Well, in Revelation, these four horses, they reappear, um, and they actually make matters worse, not better. They reveal, I believe, in Revelation 6, they reveal the evils that are uh, perpetrated against the faithful. And they describe, if you will, they put the, they put the problem up on the, uh, the table. The scroll is God's answer, but first, what are the problems? And we get that in Revelation 6. The first seal, or horse... Symbolizes the powerful kings, and this is Revelation six, one and two. Symbolizes the powerful kings of the earth who conquer and claim sovereignty over the less fortunate. Now remember, this is my my viewpoint. There's a variety of different opinions on how these, these seals are functioning. The second seal in Revelation six, three and four. Or the, the horse symbolizes the evil that removes the fake peace that we all long for and that the world promises. We all live in a world where people are promising peace, peace, peace. Uh, we have lots of scriptural passages that talk about that prophetically. And then this horse removes that, that fake peace. And we see the world for what it truly is. Now we're seeing it through God's eyes. So we, he now, we now know that the peace that the world promises can't happen can't have world peace. Not yet. The third seal, or horse, symbolizes the evils that arise from abusive economic policies and practices perpetrated against the poor. That's in verses 5 and 6. We see that all the time. I travel to third world countries regularly, and I, I see corruption everywhere I go. I know it's in my own country. I just can't see it as clearly. But I see it in the other countries. And so typical of these policies that are abusive, the people that get hurt the most are the poor. Uh, When we were in Haiti, I asked our three weeks ago or two weeks ago, whatever it was, I asked uh, one of our friends there, I said, we, the United States gives a lot of aid to Haiti. Where is it? And he said, we don't know. We have the same question because we don't have it (laughs) and we don't benefit from it. Somebody gets it. We just don't know who. And it's not my area, so I can't even begin to address it. The fourth seal, or horse, symbolizes all the evil and corrupt tyrants that destroy the less fortunate. We'll actually come back to this a little bit later in Revelation. That's in verses 7 and 8. The fifth seal symbolizes the dead in Christ who long for the ultimate justice. That's verses 9 through 11. They're asking the question, how long, O Lord? In fact, in verse 10, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They're asking the perennial question, why are you waiting? It's intriguing to me that I spend a lot of time out in our county coffee shops, bars, things like that, talking to people. And this this type of question is often used as a reason not to believe in God. How could God sit by and allow the evils of the world to happen? How could that be? And yet here we are, the believers are asking the same question, the dead in Christ, with the difference that they're expecting and they're anticipating his ultimate justice. Now, this has been the cry of the faithful down through the ages. Think of Exodus 2 and the slaves... Of the Israelite slaves in Egypt. They're, they're, they cry out to the Lord. And he hears their groaning. Because uh, they don't like it. What are you doing Lord? How come? The faithful in the period of the kings. Uh, look in Lamentations. The faithful in Jerusalem during the final siege. Uh, Great is thy faithfulness. Comes right out of Lamentations. And um, they're, they're pleading with the Lord. They're in the final days of, of the southern kingdom. And they cry out Lord. Where are you? So this has been the cry all the way down to today, and we feel it today. Lord, what are you waiting for? Why do you allow these things to happen? They and us are told that we must wait <clears throat> until the final restoration of all things. And then finally, the sixth seal, verses 12 to 17, using many Old Testament images, you have the sun turning black like sackcloth, et cetera, et cetera. Using all these Old Testament images, I believe it symbolizes the huge political and social turbulence and unrest of the world. A scene pictured by many, many prophets. And so if this is the reality of the world, I believe it is, then this describes accurately, using imagery, all of the problems that exist in the world. Then we come to the seventh seal. Oh, wait. That's not what happens. You expect, because you look in verse 1, he opened the first of chapter 6 of the seven seals. Verse 3, open the second seal. Verse 7, open the fourth seal. Uh, the third seal, I forgot, skipped over that one. Verse 9, the fifth seal The sixth seal, verse 12. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, there's no seventh seal. We still don't know what's in the scroll. All the seals have to be broken before you can see what God's plan is. What's this all about? So, chapter 7, I'm going to read the first three verses. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land, or on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. Interesting phrase. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. That's an important uh, phrase. He's been given power to harm creation. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So up until this time, uh, the lamb has been opening the seals. But now all of a sudden we have an, an angel appearing with a different kind of seal. Okay, you have to understand how seals worked in the Old Testament or in the ancient world. It doesn't have to be Old Testament, first century as well. They, uh, they would close up the scroll, and this is one type of seal, and they would dip their whatever their signature seal is into the wax, and they would put it on there. That way the recipient could instantly tell if anybody's read the mail. Because you have to break the seal to open it up. Those are the first six seals. But there was a second type of seal that was used to designate ownership, such as slaves, for example. You can mark a slave as it belongs to you. This is captured in the, this very scene as the faithful who are to persevere through all kinds of global catastrophes. They're called servants of God. That's, the, that's what they're called, they're called servants of God, slaves. They didn't really have a big distinction between servants and slaves in the ancient world. You're either a free person or you're a slave. So the slaves of God could be marked. <clears throat> this type of sealing occurs other places in the Bible. For example, in 2 Timothy, um, we see it there. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Paul's talking, Nevertheless... God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows who's those those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So in this context he's saying that we as, as believers, we are sealed. We have this marking on us. If you go back to Ephesians chapter one, verse thirteen, at the end of the at the end of this long uh prayer of blessing uh, he says, In him we, the Gentiles, were chosen, I mean, I'm sorry, In him we Jews were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in accordance with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, that's why I say this is a Jewish person, I believe, Jewish uh, orientation, might be the pra- for the praise of his glory. And you also, now he's talking to the Gentiles, he's talking to us. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a the seal. There's that imagery. You were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So it's not. This is not an unusual thing. It just kind of fits in with right in the middle. You have six seals, and then you have the seventh seal, which hasn't been broken yet. And all of a sudden, we have this. Um, whole interlude. Apparently suffering is to come upon the whole world because of evil people. Um, in Ezekiel, by the way, this was prophesied by many different prophets. In Ezekiel chapter 9, you have a very vivid picture of this. As I listened, <clears throat> he said to the others, follow him through the city, and I'm jumping into the middle of a prophecy here. Uh, follow, follow him through the city and kill without showing Pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men, and the women, the mothers and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. He had said early, earlier, mark them. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the old men who were in front of the temple. So the ones who they're killing are the ones without the mark, the ones who had rebelled, who had rejected God, consciously rejected him. He said. To, then he said, defile the temple, fill the courts with the slain, go, So they went out and began killing throughout the city. While they were killing, um, and I was left alone, I fell face down crying out, Alas, Sovereign Lord, now think about this question in light of the last seal. Are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in your wrath on Jerusalem? So the, the outpouring of the wrath are on those who have actively rejected God. And I think that's the state of every human. We're given the choice. God created us to pursue him, but he gives us the freedom to actively reject. And so Ezekiel's question is a very important one. The implied, are you going to kill everybody? And the applied answer is no. You see, the faithful will survive. He needed to be assured that the faithful will come safely through the cleansing. By the way, after this in Ezekiel 10 is when you have the glory of the Lord departing the temple. That's where their sin had become so great as a nation that uh, God's glory left the temple. And this is right at the very end. Pretty soon the southern kingdom is deported. Israel no longer exists. And that was the fulfillment of all the prophecies that if they turn against the Lord, then they would cease to exist. And that's what happened. The glory of the Lord in Ezekiel 10 lifts up. It's one of the saddest chapters in the Bible to me. Um, And it looks back at the temple. I picture God looking at the temple and uh, moving away. The glory of the Lord left, and the glory of the Lord was gone. Even all the years later, a generation later, when they came back into the land, the glory of the Lord never returned to the temple until Christ. What we see from Revelation 7 at this point is that the angel has the ability to bring incredible harm to the created order. That's why he says, um, do not harm, in verse 3, the land or the sea or the trees until we mark basically the forehead of God's people. Apparently the creation needs purifying as well. Um, Paul argues that all of creation is awaiting our redemption. They paid a tremendous price for our sin. And so not only do we need to be cleansed and purified and redeemed, so does creation. And this is, I think, perhaps what he's talking about. So this raises the question in verse 4. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, (coughs) 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And he lists all the tribes. Who are these 144,000? Again, a great uh, matter of debate down through church history. So I'll give you my thoughts. Revelation 7 is kind of like a parenthesis, an interlude between the six seals in Revelation 6 and the seventh seal in Revelation 8. So the last question asked when the sixth seal is open, chapter 6, verse 17, is who's able to withstand this judgment, this wrath that's coming? So that's what he says. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That's John's question. Who's going to withstand all this? Revelation 7 answers that question, those who have been marked by the Lord and sealed. Now, <clears throat> remember in, uh, in in the earlier part of Revelation, we saw that he heard about the lion of the tribe of Judah, but then he sees the lamb. And so these two ministries come together. We have the same thing happen here. John hears... In verse 4, the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. But then by the time we get to verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. So he hears the number 144,000, but he sees a multitude so big that nobody could even count them. So this number, I think, symbolically represents the people of God who have been renewed and rescued down through the ages. That's what we're talking about, all those who have been marked... Uh, marked by the Lord. These are the ones who have been marked. They do not escape suffering. We're going to find that out later. But they survive it and they escape to the other side. What's suffering? Everything talked about in these seals. Our world. We see it all the time, all around us. We see this this very destructive world that we live in because of sin. Additionally, these are the ones who will survive as witnesses to God's incredible power because they're there When God finishes everything, they're there to witness His power, His purification of the earth, His dealing with sin and evil. They become the witnesses. That's who we are. Or as Hebrews says, we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Then we move into the whole concept of salvation. We have the very first song of the redeemed, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation tribe, people, and language. Now, we've already seen this language earlier. Uh, in the last two chapters, uh, Revelation 4 and 5, we saw it. We're going to see it many times in Revelation. Uh, as I said before, one of my fun questions in the classroom is, when you get to eternity, what color are you going to be? And uh, the students, are they're predisposed to answer whatever color they are, but it's really intriguing when you ask the question because they, they slowly begin to look around and recognize that we're in a diverse group. They can't always answer the question. Here's the answer right here. Before the throne, every nation, tribe, people, and language. What color are you? Color you are right now. As I've told my Nepalese and Mozambican friends, I want them to be who they are their color, their language, their cultural customs. And uh, that's who they get to be. So these are the ones that become, if you will, the witnesses what John is doing here is he's he's preparing them for a nightmare, this great crowd and uh, he goes on, they were wearing white robes and we're holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation. So this is the first song of the redeemed in this section. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So he's, doing, he's preparing them for, they have to endure all this stuff in chapter 6. He's preparing them by giving them a picture of reality that they can hold on to. This is our world. In my mind, Felix describes our world. The reality is that the Lamb has already won the victory. Back in chapter 5, verse 5, when he's crying, who can open the scroll, the plan of God? Here's what the angel said, one of the elders said, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has already triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. So the Lamb has already won the victory, so we can now understand it's 144,000. I believe they are the complete list of God's people from every nation, tribe, people, and language down through the ages. Now remember, it's easy to get caught up in, in how much of this is prophecy, and that's a very complex area of uh, studies in Revelation, very complex. But remember I said we're we're seeing it through God's eyes and God doesn't always have the same concept of time that we do so we have heaven and earth simultaneously and John, John is here looking through the portal <clears throat> stepping into that throne room and seeing what God sees so their reality is also our reality and the picture is now that we are standing in the throne room of God with John So song number 2 starts in verse 11 All the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and with the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne. Now remember, in chapter 5, it's thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands of angels. They fall on their face before the throne. They worship God and they're saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever. Amen. You see, the faithful have endured a great tribulation. And so they have survived the horrors and evils of the world of which we live with every day. So now they wake up, they wake up in this picture to a new day. No wonder they're praising God and shouting because they understand the reality. And this was written to believers so we could see what's actually happening around us. They wake up to this new day. We can now see that the faithful have joined God in his throne room. It's no longer John alone. We're standing there with him. That's why Paul can say we are seated at the right hand of Christ right now. In Ephesians 2, right now. It's a puzzle to me. It's a mystery. I get it. Because I live in a world with three dimensions and five senses. But somehow, if I could put on different lenses, spiritual lenses, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Even now. So we coexist in both of those worlds. This is a glimpse of the new Jerusalem, uh, which exists on the heaven and the earth, envisioned in Revelation 21 and 22, I believe. Or as Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. We get to enjoy this as our home. We get to enjoy it for eternity. Heaven and earth have come together with the Lamb at the center. And that's what he's saying right here in this praise. And then he goes on, um, verse uh, verse 13. One of the elders asked me, I love this interlude, this question. This is something that happens all throughout Revelation. Uh, you got the two songs of the redeemed, and then all of a sudden there's a question. There's a conversation that happens. So one of the elders asked me, uh, these in the white robes, who are they and where they come from? He asked John that question, and John says, "Uh, I answered, sir, you know. So he answers the question. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd he will lead them to springs of living water and god will wipe away every tear from their eyes so as i just said we now have a picture of the faithful of all time they have they have endured they have survived the horrors and evils of a of a very broken world i've said many times in my own church because we live in such a beautiful place don't be deceived It's an illusion. Oh, it's beautiful for us. We get to enjoy it. But I spend, uh, every week I spend time with people in uh, coffee shops, bars, restaurants. And underneath the surface, it's a very broken world. A lot of hurt, a lot of pain. And this is a picture of what it looks like for us ultimately. We have endured all of that. Wake up to a new day and we get to praise Him. And uh, that's why they're shouting. Uh, because they're so excited. Um, and we're with John in the throne room. It's a glimpse of the new Jerusalem. Everything has come together. But now we see something else. Psalm 23 is now realized in all of its fullness. Psalm 23. He, verse 17, the Lamb, will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. We find this imagery through Isaiah and many other places. Uh, it's Psalm 23. Psalm 23. It's now completed. We can now see the true purpose of the earthly temple. We are in his temple. Um, Hebrews says it's a picture of the temple in heaven. It's to invite us to join God in his home, if you will. I love 1 Kings chapter 8. When Solomon is dedicating the temple, he prays. He has this fantastic prayer right smack in the middle of the prayer. He says, and God when the foreigner comes, because they will indeed hear of your great name, listen to their prayers and answer them so they will know that you are the one true living God that's what the true temple is all about that we are the spiritual temple, and what that means is that is our role. when the unbelievers come, Paul envisioned that in first Corinthians fourteen unbelievers should come in and out of our churches, that raises the question. And this goes back to why we did what we did as a church to uh, suspend church gathering for these two weeks. Our primary purpose as a church is to fulfill God's mission to reach the world. And so when our governing officials ask us, would you be willing to do this? We say, absolutely. In fact, let's use this time to reach out and love our neighbors and our friends because that's why we exist. We don't exist to, to protect ourselves in an enclave. We, we exist to praise the Lord. That's why we're here. And to invite our non-Christian friends to come in and experience the same God that we know. So what does this mean? I have a, just a couple of closing thoughts. Uh, no matter what we have to endure, we can be assured of God's protection and love. Uh, one of the things that we have to endure is, in fact, disease. We have tribulation, war, we have corruption, we have all of that. In Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all of our sins and heals all of our diseases. And wasn't that the ministry of Christ? We live in a world right now where disease is rampant. And uh, the greatest thing we can do as a church is to be people that love these others and help them, uh, help them, old and young alike. So I think that we should be remindful of that. Whenever we hear the term God or the name Jesus, we should instantly think of this scene where God's people and all the creatures are praising him for everything he has done. Remember, there's one that stands behind everything that we see. This is what Easter is about. This is what was accomplished on the cross. Father, thank you for... Just for your goodness. Thank you for rescuing us. um, Helping us to endure whatever the world throws at us, knowing full well there will come a day in the future we have already been marked, Paul says in Ephesians, with the Holy Spirit. Sealed. And so just give us the grace to endure well what we have to endure and to not be so protective of ourselves but to be mindful of our friends and neighbors that don't understand. Help us to show them that kind of love. In your son's name we pray. Amen.